Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Let's talk about the food processing plant raids in six Mississippi cities, where they were hailed by the Trump administration as record-breaking, but Jackson, Mississippi's mayor called them inhuman and ineffective. 680 undocumented immigrants were first detained. More than 300 were released yesterday. With me is Oscar Chacon. He's co-founder and executive director of Alianza Americas. It's an umbrella organization of U.S.-based immigrant-led and immigrant-serving organizations, and Oscar is in Mexico City right now. He has just been on the Guatemala and Mexico border, and we'll talk a bit about Guatemala as we move along as well. Good to talk with you, Oscar Chacon. Thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you, Jerome. Thank you for the opportunity. I wonder if you could put some context on these raids in Mississippi, because these food processing plants are places where immigrants have been working for decades, and this is this is like a institutionalized situation. Uh, people were writing books about these ten, fifteen years ago. Um, what, what, how do you read what's been happening here? Well, first of all, it's important to understand that immigration raids uh, happen to be one important component of what this administration, the Trump administration, has promised that they would put more pressure on. Uh, remember that not long ago, uh, President Trump himself um, basically threatened that they were going to deport hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people uh, in raids that they expected to carry out eventually. So I believe that this particular raid is the beginning of a phase that I believe will intensify between now and the time of the elections next year, because the president will continue to use immigration and specifically raids as a way of um, basically pleasing his most ardent uh, supporters going into the 2020 election. But in the larger scheme of things, I think it is important to uh, point out the fact that this particular raid brought me memories of the raids that were conducted in Iowa in 2006. You know, then the Bush administration under Chertoff, uh, then the head of the Department of Homeland Security, carried out very similar uh, raids against precisely poultry uh, plants, meat processing plants in Iowa. And I think that they know very well that if they want to have the most, um, how could I say, visibility, the most media impact on a raid, this is exactly what they would do, because they know that these people are concentrated in workplaces, which unfortunately do not offer the same setting for protection of people uh, compared to immigration officers going into people's homes. There has been a lot of work done trying to educate people about what to do if immigration comes to your place of living, but not so much in terms of the place of work, especially because these are not places that are unionized. And the last thing I would say is that the employers, if this particular trend continues, they may become uh, critics you know, of this particular practice because remember that we are undergoing a very uh, important moment in terms of unemployment rate. This companies are very unlikely to find workers that will work as hard and for as cheaply as they normally do it. 
And therefore, this may become a problem for uh, President Trump if he keeps going forward. And the last thing I'll say, I mean, is that I'm happy to hear that a good number of the people arrested have already been released. That indicates that there may be some form of relief that these populations may be able to find, especially because these are not people who arrived yesterday. They've been around for decades. And I think that this shows also the futility of raids. Um, frankly, the way I call them is a w outright waste of public resources because they don't at all address anything that should be of concern to most Americans. What do you think the uh, fear factor is on this? Is there a symbolism that the Trump administration wants to get out there? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, they've been pursuing an agenda that is all about impeding the arrival of more people that they consider undesirable, to put it nicely. But on the other hand, uh, the same strategy also seeks to eject as many people as possible from the country. And of course, there is a question mark as to whether they will be able to achieve that through rates. But this is the other phase of the strategy. And so this translates when it comes to communities and in an increased condition of fear. I think that one of the most striking images coming out of these raids in Mississippi are the children who have been left alone crying, not knowing what happened with their parents, and just experiencing trauma in a way that is, frankly, inhumane. And so, yes, this translates very much into a heightened situation of tension, stress, in the case of millions of immigrant households. I'm talking with Oscar Chacon from Alianza Americas, and we're discussing what's been happening in Mississippi with the raids on the six food processing plants. But we're going to shift over now and talk about where you are. You're in Mexico City, and you just came back from the Mexico-Guatemala border. Uh, I wonder, could you explain what's been happening there? Because probably most people aren't aware of the changes that are going on in the border area between Guatemala and Mexico. Well, just to give you a little context, going back to the year 2014, when then-President Obama declared that there was uh, a humanitarian crisis at the Mexico-U.S. border because of the arrival of so many unaccompanied children, what the U.S. did then, uh, and actually Vice President Biden at the time, was instrumental in bringing about an agreement that for all practical purposes extended the U.S. border to the Mexico-Guatemala border. People have forgotten about it, but it's been in place. It has remained in place. There was a short period of time upon the arrival of Andres Manuel López Obrador as president of Mexico when Mexico shifted policy a little bit, essentially giving people transit visas throughout Mexico between, let's say, December and January. But from that point forward, the picture has changed dramatically. Mexico has gone back essentially to a policy of reinforcing border control uh, mechanisms, even deploying as of recently a so-called National Guard, which is a you know, law enforcement body that the president had promised, President uh, Andres Manuel López Obrador had promised would be devoted to fighting corruption to fighting organized crime, to fighting drug cartels inside Mexico, it's now been deployed at the Mexico-Guatemala border. So the main change is the way in which Mexico is once again detaining as many people as possible. 
using the National Guard as a form of deterrence of more people trying to cross into Mexico. And for all practical purposes, as you may also know, uh, Mexico has embraced, if not officially in practice, a so-called third safe country agreement with the U.S. So all this in the end boils down to fewer opportunities for people who are running away uh, for their lives, literally, because they are being persecuted by different kinds of violent entities in Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, having a much harder time receiving the kind of support that they wish or that they deserve, I should say. But also, this translates into a situation where a lot of people, frankly, are hoping to be able to eventually get to the U.S., and that has become very, very difficult, if not impossible. And the last thing that I can tell you is corruption, sadly, is not being helped you know, by these developments. What we saw the last couple of days at the Guatemala-Mexico border are countless s stories of people saying that the National Guard, rather than actually stopping people, have, have actually become clients of new forms of organized crime that are basically bribing members of this National Guard so that they can allow people to cross in areas that are not the traditional places of crossing, but in the process, not only extorting people, but also putting people in greater risk of losing even their lives. Uh, that is that is tough to uh, stomach. That's hard to hear. The uh, whole situation there, if somebody does get detained, um, what What is that like? Does the National Guard detain them in Mexico for a while and then bring them back? Or is there kind of a revolving door? What, what happens to the well, average person? Here is, here is the interesting aspect of all this. Uh, when I arrived, uh, together with a few colleagues from allied organizations in the U.S., we were prepared to hear that there were fewer people coming into detention centers fewer people coming into uh, the Mexican office for refugees. And interestingly, what we are hearing is that the numbers are actually picking up uh, in the last you know, month or so. And the explanation that we hear is that while it is true that through the official points of entry, there are fewer people trying to cross, there, there are more people trying to cross in what normally people call blind spots across you know, the border between Mexico and Guatemala. And that uh, clearly the National Guard, rather than detaining themselves people and then bringing them over for uh, process by the immigration authorities, people are actually showing up on their own, you know, trying to request asylum, you know, which in this country they call it refuge status. Um, but so it's, it's rather difficult to make sense of it because you would assume that either there would be a decrease in the number of immigrants or there would be uh, more people being arrested by the so-called National Guard, but that's not something what we saw. We did get to speak to quite a number of people and the process is very complicated in a way boils down to what part of the world uh, you came from. If you are Central American, the process that you go through is not exactly the same as if you are somebody from Cuba or somebody from Haiti or somebody from European, I mean, from African countries that are also uh, crossing the border between uh, Guatemala and Mexico. So all this to say that the situation hasn't really improved, continues to be rather, 
inconsistent. Uh, sometimes people manage to get uh, applications for what we would call asylum in the U.S. and be able to then stay in Mexico for a while and then move through Mexico, ultimately with the goal of getting into the U.S. But as I said, I mean, none of the changes that have taken place is really resulting in people not arriving to Mexico. And I think that the explanation for this is that none of these measures is addressing the essential triggering factor, and that is the levels of violence people experience in their own countries of origin. I'm talking with Oscar Chacon from Alianza Americas, and he's been on the border between Mexico and Guatemala. You mentioned there is a, in practice, third safe country agreement between the United States and Mexico, and there is a signed one, uh, if not a illegally implemented one, with Guatemala. Uh, could you explain what that is, a third safe country uh, deal with the United States? Yes. When the United States government signs an agreement that says that that other country is a safe country for uh, refugee processing, for asylum processing, what that means is that people arriving or crossing in that particular national territory cannot apply for asylum in the U.S., because they are supposed to apply for asylum in that third country uh, that they cross first. So in the case of Guatemala, theoretically, what the agreement means is that no one from Honduras, El Salvador, other Central American countries, or frankly, any other nationality that crosses through Guatemala can go to a, an, a next country that could be Mexico or it could be the U.S. and apply for asylum there. Because in theory, since Guatemala is deemed to be safe, they are supposed to apply for humanitarian protection there. And what I can tell you, having just come back from uh, Guatemala, is that there is a lot of mystery as to what exactly is it that the U.S. and Guatemala sign, because the Guatemalan government, nor the U.S. government, have actually fully released the details of the agreement that they claim they signed. And we find it unbelievable that the capacity of Guatemala to hold people and process people who presumably would apply for asylum protection there is simply non-existent. Imagine that country, which has along 17 million people roughly, and that it is indeed the point of crossing of many other nationalities, only has one detention facility with the capacity of holding no more than 160 people on any given day. <laughs> so it's just ridiculous. Uh, that's unbelievable. So, uh, you, you know, the I've seen the document described, uh, the, de the, the description of the safe country agreement between the U.S. and Guatemala is described as something that an intern wrote or something. It's not, it's not specific. It's not that uh, there are no details. Um, but right. but yet, um, and in Guatemala, it, it's going to be legally challenged and in theory has to go through the legislature to be approved because it was approved by Jimmy Morales, who will not be president in three days. Uh, he, It's kind of a lame duck thing that happened. It is, and what people fear in Guatemala is that a lot of the so-called annex agreements to the two pages that have been released publicly – 
is what matters. And that's the part that nobody has actually seen. Um, nobody we spoke to in Guatemala uh, knew in detail what is it that they agreed. And the only thing people suspect that is behind this agreement is some sort of commitment on the part of the U.S. not to ever present uh, any kind of legal uh, prosecution charges against Jimmy Morales. Because remember that Jimmy Morales, the outgoing <laughs> president, is considered to be one of the most corrupt uh, drug-related link uh, politicians in Central America today. And so people are highly suspicious that this agreement was signed by Guatemala in spite of what the courts in Guatemala have said, precisely because Jimmy Morales was offered some sort of relief on the part of the U.S. And the U.N. organization that has been uh, helpful in prosecuting many corruption cases in Guatemala has been um, kind of nixed by Jimmy Morales, and, I, and the incoming presidents could change that. And I imagine the U.S. is... is uh, is might be agreeing to things like no more CSIG or something. That is correct. Actually, the fear related to the election that is happening this coming Sunday is that one of the two candidates who may become the next president has said flatly and clearly that he will kick out once and for all CSIG and any other interfering bodies coming from the U.N., the other candidate has left the door open to the possibility of some form of continuity uh, by CSIC. But the most important change everybody told us about is the U.S. government position. Under the Trump administration, they couldn't care less about accountability, about transparency, about corruption, about impunity. And that is what most people find extremely concerning, because even if the candidate that has left the door open to keeping CSIG in place end up winning the election this coming Sunday, without the U.S. support, it is very unlikely that CSIG will be able to continue in a functional, truly beneficial manner for the Guatemalan people. Uh, well, that's a, that's a terrible shame. I think that the, we should say something about the presidential election here coming up on Sunday. Um, you mentioned there's two candidates. Uh, it's a runoff election. One's a left candidate. One's a right candidate. It sounds like the right candidate is doing better in the polls and that people in Guatemala are not really uh, engaged and are not going to vote in large numbers. They are disappointed by their choice. Both these candidates have run multiple times before. That is correct. I mean, I think it is accurate to say that most Guatemalans are not excited about the runoff election this coming Sunday. Uh, that means that whichever of the two candidates does the best job mobilizing their hard supporters, their hard core supporters, uh, will be the one who wins. And in this respect, Yamatei, who is the candidate considered to be far more conservative, and as I said before, he has actually promised to completely get rid of CSIG uh, and anything else like CSIG, um, may well come out uh, as the winner. Uh, the other candidate, um, Sandra Torres, she has not made a clear promise on these matters, but at least has left uh, the door open to keeping CSIG in place. She is a former first lady, uh, used to be married to former President Colom uh, in Guatemala. And 
she is not necessarily seen as an exciting candidate, you know, by most Guatemalans. So bottom line, we have two candidates that are very unappealing to most people. And it's sad. I mean, that the most inspiring candidates that at some point were surfaced as potential people running for the presidency were disqualified by the electoral authorities in Guatemala, taking away basically any real agent of change as a potential next president in the country. So we end up with more of the same in Guatemala. Sadly, that is pretty much the way we are going. Oscar Chacon is co-founder and executive director of Alianza Americas, an umbrella of U.S.-based immigrant-led and immigrant-serving organizations. Thanks for joining us from Mexico City. He's just been on the Mexico-Guatemala border. Thanks a lot, Oscar. Thank you very much, Adam. Have a good day. Narendra Modi has changed the status of one of the most dangerous flashpoints in the world. Coming up after the break, we'll discuss the change of status in Kashmir. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi defended changing the status of Kashmir in a speech to the nation yesterday. He said the Constitution's Article 370 had caused separatism, terrorism, dynastic politics, and corruption. But others are deeply worried about the move. Modi crosses the Rubicon on Kashmir. New Delhi upends the status quo in the disputed territory is an article in Foreign Affairs by Shumit Ganguly, professor of political science, and he holds the Radrindabath Tagore Chair in Indian Cultures and Civilizations at Indiana University. Shumit, good to talk with you again. Thank you. I wonder, what did you make of the prime minister's defense yesterday? He really threw the kitchen sink at his uh, defending what he's done in Kashmir. He said there's going to be a lot of developments. All citizens are going to have their rights. It's going to be the end of separatism, terrorism, and dynastic politics. Uh, he came He came out punching. Um, yes, he did. And that is about the best defense that one can mount. Um, but the fact remains that the manner in which this uh, action was taken actually violates certain constitutional principles. And obviously, that is a matter he could not address, having taken this decision um, to proceed forthwith. What's the constitutional principles at stake here? What's the, the constitutional principle that's at stake here is that he should have at least at a bare minimum consulted the uh, legislative assembly in the state of Jammu and Kashmir about stripping Article 370 from the Indian Constitution. And he simply didn't do that. And he basically used a kind of legal sleight of hand, suggesting that since that assembly has been suspended for some time and new elections 
have not been held in effect, then the Indian parliament in New Delhi becomes the venue for making this decision. And that's a rather disingenuous argument, because in the Indian parliament, it's his party that has a majority, and all he has to do is to tell them to jump, and they will say how high. What do you think about what's happening in Kashmir right now? There's uh, still a lockdown, even though this was announced on uh, on on Monday, and there is uh, not a lot of internet service. They just allowed just a little bit today. Uh, the people are going to be uh, unhappy when the full news of this gets out. There's no question about it. Their unhappiness at the moment is literally bottled up, and the cork is going to pop uh, once uh, uh, the security forces are uh, thinned out and also Internet access is restored and um, uh, uh, normal telephone lines are functioning again. Uh, there is, There are going to be protests in the streets, and uh, some of which will probably turn violent which will then lead Indian security forces to respond harshly and thereby set off an escalatory spiral, I fear. Uh, and that's just the near term. The long-term vision of this is pretty wild with uh, people from the rest of India now allowed to buy land in Kashmir. Uh, this creates a scenario, if it plays out and the legal challenges don't stop this, uh, where you'd kind of have an, an ethnic uh, ethnic situation where the, the Hindus come in and start buying up land in this place. That is the precisely the fear that many Kashmiris, particularly Kashmiri Muslims, in a, in one of the three regions of Kashmir called the Valley, where which is predominantly Muslim, and that's precisely what they fear. In practice, I really don't see this happening for the simple reason large numbers of people from other parts of India are not going to abandon hearth and home and suddenly move into a region where they don't speak the language, where the locals don't particularly like you, where you're not familiar with the cultural mores of the region. So this is a legitimate fear, but I don't think it is an imminent um, reality. Well, is it something um, uh, where it's like the Chinese in Xinjiang or Tibet? They uh, basically knew what they were doing, put in some railroads, got uh, they got it and made it attractive for a lot of Han Chinese to go into these areas. And large, you know, they're overrunning these areas with Han Chinese. And that would be very easy for India to do with Hindu nationalists. That is possible in an authoritarian state where you have little or no safeguards and where Tibet can be or Xinjiang can be treated as an internal colony of the People's Republic of China. It's much more difficult in India where there is still a vibrant civil society, where courts are generally independent, where there are constitutional provisions that must be overcome despite what Modi has done in the very recent past. So there are many impediments that exist. So while I, I can appreciate the fears that people have, I think it is also important for us to recognize that there are significant hurdles and barriers which uh, have to be overcome before one sees a situation similar to Xinjiang or Tibet. 
Um, what about the international reaction here? Uh, first of all, Pakistan. Um, what does what do you think Pakistan's reaction to all this will be? Pakistan's reaction is entirely predictable. Pakistan has already cut off uh, the uh, train services that existed between India and Pakistan. Um, it has also uh, stopped Indian civilian aircraft from over overflying Pakistani airspace. It has uh, asked the Indian High Commissioner, the ambassador, to leave Islamabad, uh, and it is also contemplating other actions. It has reached out to, uh, to Istanbul and to um, um, to uh, Kuala Lumpur, uh, Malaysia, uh, to uh, to, um, to, uh, uh, to Turkey and Malaysia, respectively. It ha- it is also planning on bringing the issue up in September at the United Nations General Assembly. There have been public demonstrations in Pakistan. Uh, the Pakistani military has said it will take uh, appropriate actions. So um, uh, th- there is considerable discord within Pakistan. And of course, Prime Minister Imran Khan, um, who, for reasons of political survival, is fanning these sentiments. Now, uh, it does seem like the Pakistani military, though, uh, it gets all its worst fears confirmed about India and and full speed ahead with their ideas about uh, everything about this conflict. Oh, absolutely. And they are going to adumbrate on these fears. They're going to sort of um, uh, to further provoke these fears in the minds of the local population. And they have their uh, uh, chosen people in the Pakistani media who will do their bidding and uh, sort of spin out the worst case scenarios. Already have seen things on the Internet um, which are just completely imaginary and fantastic claims about the number of Kashmiris who've been shot and killed by the Indian security forces. And there is no attempt at sourcing these claims. These are just sort of outrageous assertions uh, that are being made in the Pakistani press and particularly on the internet in Pakistan. Uh, and uh, my strong suspicion is it's uh, uh, it's the ha- uh, these people who are doing this are sort of essentially the handmaidens of the Pakistani military. How freaked out should people be about this? Because uh, here we are with two nuclear powers. This is their flashpoint. Something significant is happening here. And um, how out of control do you think this could get? It has not gotten out of control. What we will have to watch for are the next several days and weeks, particularly after the curfew is lifted, after something called Section 144 of the Indian Criminal Code is lifted, which prohibits the assembly of more than four people in a public place. It currently has been invoked in Kashmir. It, when that is lifted, when the curfew is lifted, when some of the security forces return to the barracks, and when the first protests begin. Uh, If the protests get out of hand 
and the Indian security forces respond with considerable violence, Pakistan will almost invariably step into the fray and sow further discord. And already we are getting reports that along the line of control, the de facto international border between the India and Pakistan, shelling and uh, artillery barrages have increased. So we should keep a closed watch on these developments because they will be harbingers of what might come in the foreseeable future. I wanted to ask a question about what's happening inside of India with the treatment of uh, minorities in India. Does this uh, confirm all their worst fears if they weren't already confirmed by the BJP previously? They, I mean, this is a accelerant to the feeling that we are dealing with a ethno-nationalist state and the, the ball is, is rolling. Oh, I don't think the minorities in India, particularly Muslims, had any particular illusions about this regime, particularly, especially when it came back to power with a thumping majority in parliament. Um, uh, So all uh, this decision has done is perhaps... Uh, confirmed their worst fears. But those fears were already quite prevalent in the minds of of the Muslim minority even before this decision is made. And historically, Muslims in India have tried to distance themselves from developments in Kashmir largely because they don't want to be painted uh, as uh, disloyal to the Indian state. So they have tried to keep uh, uh, away from the politics of Kashmir uh, because of this anxiety that they had, they've all long had, that this might be used against them and uh, a suggestion might be made that they are a kind of a fifth column for Pakistan. And that's why they have, for the most part, steered clear of the politics of Kashmir. But in their own minds, in their hearts, they will now come to the conclusion that, yes, a kind of a majoritarian enterprise is fully underway. And and it's willing... Any doubts about the matter. And it's willing to go extra-constitutional. It's willing to go beyond uh, what the rule of law is about this. Um, I'm afraid so. Um, uh, that the the constitutional basis for this decision, regardless of how one feels about this decision, um, uh, is actually quite tenuous. Shumit Ganguly is distinguished professor of political science, and he hosts the Rabindranath Tagore Chair in Indian Cultures and Civilization at Indiana University in Bloomington. Thanks a lot for joining us, Shumit. Good to talk with you. Thank you for this opportunity. Coming up after the break, we'll have Weekend Passport with Nari Safavi and let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. Our global citizen friend Nari Safavi has some of the suggestions that you need to have a global good time. It's great to see you, Nari. Good day, Jerome. It's great to be here again. Well, uh, where should we go first, Nari? Well, I want to do a couple of mentions, and one of them is actually uh, an event uh, called UGAT, UGAT, Philippinex Roots and Resistance. And it's happening Wednesdays uh, from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Uh, or until August 31st. It's happening every Wednesday. And it's at Indies Times um, uh, cent- uh, offices at 2040 North Milwaukee Avenue. Avenue. Uh, it's a, it's a very it's about storytelling of Filipino people and a very interesting take on them. It might be worthwhile to to check that out one of these Wednesdays that's coming up. And it's a it's like an art exhibit that tells the story of the resistance to the Duterte regime in the Philippines. Exactly, exactly. And then there is also a, a, a Romanian photography show coming up uh, tonight over at the uh, uh, at the at the Avondale area and it's at uh, on Montrose Avenue is 4137 uh, West Montrose at 7 p.m. A very interesting exhibition uh, from uh, several Romanian photographers over there. So it might also be a good one to check out. Romanian photographers? That sounds cool. Yeah, exactly. Romanians have been very good at visual arts lately and their cinema is really dominating the world uh, in terms of uh, cinematic storytelling. But the photography should be pretty good too. So it might be worthwhile to check that out. All right. That's two things. What else you got? Uh, Well, we've got a really interesting thing uh, going on uh, Saturday night called Pomegranate's Queer Muslim Mythologies. This is about uh, the intersection of being a Muslim and being a faithful Muslim, a believing one, and also yet being queer, having a queer identity. Interesting stories and narratives emerge. And there is going to be uh, some of this happening at uh, Nightingale Cinema, the screenings of all of this at 1084 North Milwaukee Avenue, Saturday night, with some really interesting food and even some Kashmiri chai, which I hear is ah. really delicious. I've never tried it before. Nabil Vega is the curator and organizer of Pomegranates, as well as an artist, a creative organizer, and experienced designer in Chicago. Great to meet you. Yeah, great to meet you too. Thank you for having me today. To tell us more about this. Yeah, so Pomegranates, um, it's part of a larger project called VIX, Virtual International Exchange. Um, the impetus for this project is to really bring um, creatives and artists, um, thinkers, um, with a lot of different experiences, different generations, um, just kind of thinking about like how to queer spaces, places, and gestures, essentially. Um, and pomegranate specifically is like it's a very like scrappy um like labor of love project i actually conceived of it a couple weeks ago and just like at this moment where i realized that eid was coming up and it just didn't feel right to like not celebrate that um there have been you know um and just brought brought a lot of different like voices together um to help us celebrate in Chicago. So the artists are in the moment now in Toronto, in um, L.A., in San Francisco, in Pakistan, Lahore. 
Um, So they all, all of these stories, all these people um, kind of help bring together a narrative that is like a little more, a little more nuanced than like what you would, I guess, expect of uh, a stereotypical like Muslim Muslim story, right? Um, Just for clarification purposes, the Eid that we're talking about is the Eid uh, of sacrifice. Yeah. uh, Which is about the story of uh, Isaac or uh, or Ishmael uh, thinking about uh, sacrificing his son, uh, Abraham, and the relationship that they develop with God. And the Muslims all celebrate that uh, at some level in different versions of it. And they usually sacrifice a goat or a lamb or something. <laughs> <laughs> but this is more about uh, sort of you were, you were focused on how can one be a queer person yet still celebrate that uh, that occasion which is very important to muslims uh, muslim believing muslims yeah. the narratives of the of the abraham and his sons basically well it's less about i guess like dealing with the question of like how can one be and more about like celebrating the fact that we have always been here right and um like what does like taking on taking on this tradition and taking on like all of these inherited things that we've grown up with as, as being muslim um and like where do where can we find healing in those spaces too? And like where can we find and see ourselves in those narratives? Um, so it's it's really just like more also like, yes, celebration, but making space for talking about like how do we also then address like everything that's that needs to be addressed in our communities. Um, so yeah. parts of the parts of the films that are going to be screened um kind of deal with like one, Islamophobia and like colonization, like Orientalism, and then thinking about futurism, like Islamic futurism, and like what the possibilities are in those in those moments, and um, even considering like anti-blackness in our spaces, or like thinking about like the invisibilization of like Swana and South Asian and like Mina communities, and like how does like hierarchy and class kind of like play into our communities? Um, so like the films are all pretty like. I guess like a little heady and my intention for the curation at least is to find a balance between the levity of, you know, like coming together and celebrating this, um, but also like being critical and like intentional um, in terms of the content. Nabil Vega is the curator and organizer of Pomegranates, and it's happening tomorrow at the Nightingale Cinema. We have one of the filmmakers on the line with us. Ladan Siad is a filmmaker, designer, and creative technologist, and uh, the film, his, uh, their film is going to be showing tomorrow night. Uh, thanks for joining us, uh, Ladan. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, tell us a little about your film. We've got a clip here. It's, it's really good. It, it's a cool clip. Yeah, well, um, I can tell you, it's a, um, a story about a genderqueer Somali teenager who kind uh, has to spend the day with their grandmother taking um, her around and they're kind of the assumptions they have about each other. Um, and so it's kind of like a, um, what would we say, like a buddy uh, kind of a film, but it, it's like intergenerational. Um, yeah, and I think there's a lot of assumptions um, that people have about the communities um, that I come from, like being black and queer and uh, Muslim. And I think the story, like Nabil was saying, there's a lot of nuance um, in our lives and the stories that we tell. And, and this clip is um, um, showing the kind of tensions um, between the two. 
And they're uh, in a car together and uh, turning on and off the radio occasionally here during the clip if you, you don't get that vibe from the clip. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, what's the name of the film? Uh, the, the, the film's called If Teen. If Teen. Yeah. What's in the package? Your grandfather, my life. I don't remember him much. I used to show you a picture of him when you were little, then you don't forget him. Why waste your time looking at photos of dead people all day? Stafrullah, don't speak like that. Those are your ancestors. You have to pray for them when they're not here. What about us? Huh? What about us? You're wasting your time holding on to the past. What does it even do for you? You have no respect for your tradition. Tradition has no respect for me. That's the movie Iftin. Uh, it's a movie about a genderqueer Somali-Canadian teenager and their relationship with their grandmother gets right at it there. Uh, that was uh, really nice, Ladon. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think for me, um, it just, there's a lot of, especially I think when I tell people that I'm like queer and Muslim and trans, they're like, how can this be possible? And I think for me, in a lot of ways, the film was like a wish fulfillment about the real, the relationships that I do have within my community and the wish ones that I wish that I did. Um, and so, yeah, I hope people enjoy it. Um, yeah, and I'm excited for the event. And I really appreciate Nabil creating the space to have these conversations. Uh, tell us more about the artists, other artists who are coming, Nabil. Yeah, so we actually have uh, Chicago's own Fazi Mirza. Um, and I'm Abbas in Lahore, uh, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, also related to OG Zulfikar Ali Bhutto. Yeah, pause there for a second. Sure. Because this is Zulfikar Ali Bhutto. This is the grandson of the founder of Pakistan, the People's Party founder of Pakistan. Yeah. yeah. And the former prime minister. <laughs> and who lives in the U.S. now yeah. Yeah. and um, and dances and... Uh, uh, yeah, they're, they're a drag performer, they're a curator, they're an artist. Um, they're mostly located in the Bay Area, but yeah. All right. And uh, some of the other artists? Um, um, so who, did, who did we miss? I don't think we missed it. Well, myself, Fazi Mirza. I guess. Fazi Mirza. <laughs> um, yeah. The legendary Fazi Mirza. <laughs> the legendary Fazi Mirza. In Chicago, one of the best theater actors and film producers in Chicago right now. So, yeah. yeah. So the way that I actually connected with all of these people was um, through uh, an oral history project that I had started about two years ago um, through a fellowship at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. I'm actually fairly new to Chicago. I've been here about a year and a half. Um, so it's been a really nice welcome, um, warm welcome to all the communities here. Um, but like all of the conversations that we had um, through that project and like reaching out and like looking for these narratives and these people doing similar work was really the impetus of like being able to being able to like really intentionally bring bring this curation together. There is even uh, 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 you just told me and I realize uh, this right now that there is even uh, a queer Muslim congregation a masjid a yes. mosque actually in Chicago now too. Yeah, it's called Masjid Al Rabia. They um, just 
got their first brick and mortar in downtown Chicago. Um, they're actually also going to have an Eid celebration on the beach on Sunday. Okay, very good. Yeah. Uh, can you describe how different this is for the community, for, for everybody? Because, you know, this is, uh, I don't think it, it, a lot of people can appreciate how, how you know, really new and, and wild this is. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is regular for me because it's my lived experience. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I guess, like, one of the reasons why this is, I mean, Ladan, please also um, chime in, like, Actually, I'm very interested in like how how you're feeling about um, this question too. Um, I guess for me, there's also an organization in Canada. Shout out to Salam Canada. Yeah, um, that's like, um, and they've been working for like uh, like 20 years, I think. And so there, there, I think there's a disconnect in terms of like seeing it out there in the world, like queer Muslims in the forefront. Um, but I think, like you said, we've always been there um, in community. Um, it's just like now there, we're in a space where we're trying to show like in, in, through art, through writing, through a lot of different mediums like that we're here and that we've always been there. Um, yeah, I think we're also a lot of disconnected people. Um, and so now we're trying to be more connected. At least for me, there's a lot of ways in which the internet i connected with a lot of other queer muslims through like tumblr or like twitter instagram or things like that um and like thinking that you're a unicorn but realizing there's so many people like you ladan ladan siad is a filmmaker and her film uh, their film 15 a movie about gender queer somali teenagers and their relationship with their grandmother it was going to be at pomegranates uh queer muslim mythologies tomorrow Saturday at 7 p.m. at the Nightingale Cinema, 1084 North Milwaukee Avenue. Nabil Vega is curator and organizer of Pomegranates. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about your event. That sounds awesome. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, yeah. Also, shout out to Sal Salam. I just realized that we didn't mention her. Um, she works with Chicken Chicago to create safer social spaces for queer and trans Desi folks in the Chicagoland area, actually, um, and right. is going to be emceeing the event. Thanks, Nari Safavi, for another fine weekend passport. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.